It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you in January of 2024 from Atlanta, Georgia in the Muscogee Creek Territory in the Piedmont region that's in the foothills of the Appalachia Mountain Range. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, the benefits of humans starting to embrace our animality and kinship with other animals. Instead of falsely repressing our animality and continuing to think of ourselves as exceptional and above all animal life. We'll talk about how we can productively change our self-narrative with author Melanie Challenger, who wrote the book, How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. As she phrases it, it's an invitation to refresh in our minds the loveliness of being animal. I really like that phrase. Our guest, Melanie Challenger, is an award-winning British writer on environmental history, philosophy of science, and the relationships of humans to the natural world. She's researched Arctic and Antarctic environmental issues, including the history of whaling. Her first nonfiction book, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, was selected by Publishers Weekly as one of the best nonfiction books of 2012. Melanie has written for publications such as New Scientist, The Guardian, and BBC Science Focus. She's participated in a number of films, including the BBC series Nature and Us, and hosts the podcast series The Psychosphere. All of this is outlined and shared at her website, which is MelanieChallenger.com. Melanie also has a new edited book called Animal Dignity, Philosophical Reflections on Non-Human Existence. Melanie's been a visiting scholar at Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and the Humanities and a visiting fellow in the philosophy department of Durham University. She's a deputy co-chair of the Newfield Council on Bioethics and a vice president of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the RSPCA. She's also a member of CEP, which is a global collective of environmental philosophers. Melanie is a founding member of a cool new group called Animals in the Room or Animals in the Room, it's an Animals in the Room project, where she is involved in devising new models for representing the interests of non-human animals in decisions critical to their lives. Today, we're going to be talking about her impactful 2021 book, How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. Welcome, Melanie. Oh, thank you very much, Harry. That was that was quite the... Uh... Um, quite the introduction, I, um, but I really appreciate being here. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, you actually made a <laughs> career as a writer. I mean, I'm like, she did it. That's, I mean, hardly anyone can actually do that. I'm like, this is so impressive. I was so pleased when your book came out. It took me a, a while to, I should have had you on the show earlier, but <laughs> because I often write about the false human animal dualism we humans create where we're seeking to repress and deny our status as fellow animals an attempt to be superior or immortal, or just to justify our oppression of other animals. What drew you to the conclusion that the fundamental issue of humanity is that we don't want to admit that we're an animal, but but we should admit that? Well, in some ways, the kind of biography that opens it is, is a key to that. So I, I don't do a book that I think is going to be successful or a book that you know I, I don't think in those kind of material terms or commercial terms maybe I should do more but I don't you I'm know sure I'm your really publishers gonna... love that <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest that yeah, I, I like I, it I go on I go on a you know I go on an old-fashioned intellectual inquiry and and the the first sort of um it's very much a young person's book on extinction it's you know it's a young person kind of grappling with 
with the Anthropocene or with the kind of multiple environmental crises and trying to make sense of how cultural extinctions, biological extinctions and endangerments, or just some of the processes that are transforming the world around us, the living world, how where, where they had come from, the ideas that had powered them, and what how we should relate to, to the situation that we're in today. And it was really a kind of primer for me as an individual, let, let alone anybody else, just to try and just, I guess, just to try and walk through that territory for a while and really, really contemplate it and, and sort of do a bit of archaeology on that. And yeah, it, was really it is very process. complex and nuanced. <laughs> exactly, it is. And there's only so much you can do. Um, but one of the things that struck me as I was as I was sort of dealing with all of these different kinds of ways in which we are transforming the living world was the strangeness of how we saw ourselves as apart from it. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the kinds of philosophies that support that separation. So you mentioned dualism, that's a really good example of a kind of mind-body dualism, a substance dualism that we're made of two separate bits, like an animal bit of us and a non-animal bit of us. But the crucial turn is that it's the non-animal bit of us that matters. And that's a really important idea to start to kind of make sense of. And so it really come out of, you know, first looking at the, the terrain, if you like, and then starting to realise that there was commonality in all of these different situations that all spun around this this discomfort that we have, this disquiet that, that affects us and then sometimes manifests in, in philosophical theories or even legal um, approaches that is all based on this idea that there is something about us that is an animal and this non-animal bit of us matters more and it was really that that was the yeah. starting point the inquiry is larger than that but that was the starting point yeah and I totally agree with that I think it's the crux of really most of our problems in the world but particularly our environmental problems is the fact that we don't see ourselves as animals so I'm constantly using the term um, human animal and non-human animal or referring to myself as an animal just trying but we'll, we'll talk more about kind of some of those how do we <laughs> we'll do that towards the end of the show like well how do we you know start changing our narrative but you mentioned the mind-body dualism and I know you discussed that in your book how humanity has often endorsed a mind-slash-body dualism where the mind is separated from and better than the body and the mind is associated with humans and the body with animals and we tend to want to escape our vulnerable mortal suffering bodies as you discuss in the book to protect ourselves from pain and death but in your book you also bring in studies showing us that we humans are not primarily our brains we are very much also our bodies and we humans can't just escape our bodies through artificial intelligence technology or genetic engineering and still really be human can you speak to that struggle to accept our bodily selves? Sure. I mean, it's a vast terrain. So I'll just try and kind <laughs> of um, drill down into some specifics. So broadly, the, this idea that there, that there's two, this sort of um, idea that recurs throughout history in lots of different forms. So the mind body is, is a really good example of it, but there's also the soul body. These are all different ways in which we see that there's some essence um, and substance that is different or special and will survive the death of the animal um, physical part of us 
And what this speaks to is a wider concern that, that is deeply animal in its nature, which is that we are cognizant of things that all organisms, not just animals, have to confront, which is the, the death and decay of, of our lives. And disease, death, um, aging, all of these kinds of natural processes are really threatening to us. And they're particularly threatening to our identity as humans, but they're threatening to all organisms. They're all in the business of trying to do what they can to kind of um, keep the flame alive for as long yeah. as possible. So what what we we can understand very much, I think all of us can understand that there are things that are frightening that follow from being animals. But where it gets really complex with human beings is how we then try and build entire kind of societies or belief systems that are all kind of structured on the top of that. So they're there to somehow buffer us from psychologically from, from the things that we fear about being animal. And I think the most troubling part of that is human exceptionalism. So this is the idea that we are not just different from other um, life around us, but that we're superior. And there's some really interesting studies that, that are around this idea of human exceptionalism. One of them, for instance, or one strain of these studies, for instance, looks at any kind of mortality salience, or not just mortality, sometimes just existential threats more broadly, and how those drive us towards narratives in which we as human beings, or sometimes just our group that we happen to be in, are superior to others. And that, that kind of drive towards um, being superior buffers us. Now, a lot of that has to derive from the, it has to be founded on something. And, and for certainly at least since, since the enlightenment, but going back earlier than that, that's been founded on the idea that we have some kind of very special mind that, that makes, that, that can somehow um, you know, is the essence that makes us special and, and that no other organism has. What we've been finding recently, of course, is that that is starting to be pushed back against by the, the wealth of, of data that we now have about other kinds of minds. Um, but it's always been a problem that, that we've had to deal with when we have taken an idea that doesn't actually have any real founding in biology or science. It is in fact a spiritual idea. It's, it's, or even sometimes just a mythological idea. In our case, it's just a narrative, it's a story we've told ourselves that, that makes sense of a moral system that suits us or makes sense of an, a, a notion that reassures us. But we've actually enacted this in the world as though it was real. And the struggle that I think our generation having is that we now have just huge amounts of science that, that just will not support that belief system. So that includes science about the way that our bodies work, the, the way that, that um, our whole bodies are recruited to um, in, in multiple aspects of our function and also just comparative um, intelligence about other kinds of intelligent systems that are out there in nature. In either way, whether it's a kind of intraspecies comparison or whether it's, it's making sense of actually how does our own intelligence work, that simple dualism just is not holding up. Because I know you talk about some of the qualities that humans share in these bodies with other animals that can be perceived as good and like, what, what do we gain from being animal? Like you talk about, um, oh, 
we have relationships and you mentioned the pleasure of springtime and eating a meal and um or like loving and grieving like that these are things that other animals do too that's the animal in us you know and i like that you said you're making those comparisons um with oh, 100%. bodies and emotions of other animals having these a lot of the same experiences oh you know biology will conserve something if if it's effective it's not you know and we're always repurposing things so in our relationships for instance with one another human beings or human species re has repurposed lots of aspects of the maternal child bond the infant child bond that we find in across all all mammals to support us in our um, non-kin relationships so we we kind of recruit lots of the similar kinds of hormones like oxytocin the cuddle hormone that's released when we breastfeed for instance is also released when we look into the eyes of someone that we love it's also released um, to help us bond with those within or, or without our group who we don't aren't necessarily our immediate kin so nature is very frugal in that kind of way but of course that builds out a huge amount of of commonality between us and other species so a wonderful example and this is also an example of how important our bodies are for us so let's say we receive some really frightening news or some very distressing news because we're a social animal um we are when we receive a shock like that our body will will go into a kind of stress state but if we receive that news when we're in proximity to someone that we have a good relationship with and if we then um touch one another um, or, or talk to one another, just be up close in proximity to one another, we'll find that our heart rate, um, it, it will lower, our respiratory rate will lower, we'll, we'll get it back into a kind of homeostasis faster than, than if we were on our own. Now, on top of that, there are particular um, deep tactile afferents, which run from kind of the top of your head right the way down your spine. If someone strokes you gently on your back just without even thinking about it that that's also part is mimicking maternal kind of licking if you like um and it gets us back uh, feeling better we do it instinctively when our children fall fall over but it's worth remembering that that is what a rat mother with her young will also do if they get a shock or if they need nurturing that is what um all kinds of of mammals in particular will do they will show those same sorts of behaviors um, in order to um, not just bond but also support us through the nox of life that's a deeply embodied behavior and it's also one that we can help us to relate to all of the other animals that that, that are alongside us and i also like this <clears throat> long quote on page 217 which is essentially saying that for us as humans to matter we don't have to deny that other animals matter and that have their own meaningful lives. And the quote is, what seems clear is that humans need meaning to reassure us in a world in which we have to die. Modern societies has, have been built on origin stories that tell us we are the highest life form in an evolutionary hierarchy. But it might be preferable to overcome the use of superiority to structure justice. One way to be reconciled with the reality that disturbs us is to reconsider it in a more convivial light. It's possible that when we see the world as alive with intelligence, it doesn't seem such a threatening place. And then at the end of the chapter, you say, 
quote, our proper place is with our fellow creatures. It's time we told ourselves a new story of revolutionary simplicity. If we matter, so does everything else. So I just wanted you to maybe speak to, to that a little bit about just because we're meaningful doesn't mean we don't have to have our meaning at the expense of theirs. <laughs> you know? And we can see well, them as alive with intelligence. I love that phrase. Yeah, well, even even more so that I think one of the problems that we've got, which, which we've touched on already, is that if we rely on false ideas to buffer us, eventually those are, go those are going to fall apart. And then what are you left with to reconstruct the meaning of your life? There's a, there's other things in the mix here, which is that you know I'm a I'm a moral naturalist, and by that I simply mean that that I see um, I, I you know I recruit understanding of of the natural world to make sense of of both where morality came from and and how we can understand what moral action actually is in the world. So I'm I'm resistant to cold hard kind of logical system building when it comes to philosophy, and I'm much more. Um, open to making sense of it in a very animal way. So as an example of that, you know, I think that when we are often talking about moral behavior, when we really drill down, what we're looking at is the way that we, we as a social animal bias our kind of affiliative tendencies, bias our bonding tendencies that we've talked a little bit about, bias um, the way in which we build positive relations in the world. We bias all of those kind of and recruit all of those mental and endocrinal tendencies that we have to nudge us towards good action um, in, in a wider sense. What's problematic about human exceptionalism is that's really leaning much more towards our hierarchical, because we are a hierarchical primate as well. So we, we have lots of competitive and um, manipulative, exploitative, um, aspects to the way that we operate socially. But when we look at human exceptionalism, I think that that tends to be an idea that's grounded on hierarchy. It's not grounded on a kind of um, much more of a, a you know, horizontal way of, of, of seeing things in a, a kind of equal and an affiliative way. It's much more that kind of vertical hierarchical notion. So that's much more about status. And that's, that's those are the kinds of um, aspects of, of our minds and our bodies that we are we're pushing ourselves towards when we use that kind of narrative to help us. We can see, of course, why it's reassuring, and it is, in a sense, of course, natural as well, but it tends to um, be very vulnerable. Anyone who puts themselves at the top is in danger of being toppled, of course, um, but it's also, in our case, based on false premises. We are continuous with the rest of the living world. There is no hard border in biology. Yes, we are remarkable. Yes, we are exceptional, but exceptional does not have to mean superior. Mm. And I think when we um, ground our lives on those sorts of principles, they tend to, do, to be pretty toxic for our relationships with one another, let alone um, as they manifest in our relations with other living beings. I like that. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about how and why we humans would benefit from embracing our animal kinship with other species instead of falsely perceiving ourselves as superior and transcending animals. This is outlined in the book, 
How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. And its author, Melanie Challenger, is our guest. Her website is melaniechallenger.com. Melanie, we only have a few minutes left, but to, to get into some solutions, many of our listeners might agree with our premise that we should be grateful to be an animal and it's part of what makes us human because then we're social and emotional and loving. So some listeners may be willing to embrace their own animality personally, but how can we scale things up to the level of society? In other words, what are some ways that we can collectively help create a more truthful and productive narrative on humanity that embeds us within the broader, rich animal community? Well, I think one of the first steps that we can take when we recognize, uh, you know, accept some of the things that we've been talking about today is, well, what follows from that morally? We are living in a in a time in which we give no intrinsic moral status to other living species, like not a single democracy on earth really gives moral standing to another living being, even extraordinarily um, intelligent or similar organisms like chimpanzees, our closest relatives, or other uh, highly social intelligent primates like um, gorillas or orangutans and so forth. Um, pilot whales, highly intelligent social animal with, with prefrontal cortex that's pinging around like ours is, even when we have animals that are really similar to us in a lot of ways, we still do not offer them any moral standing in any of our democracies, let alone consider them as subjects of justice within our decision-making processes. In order to make that turn, which is a turn that I think a political turn of inclusion that I think is absolutely necessary and will come down the line at some point in time, we have to really tackle our, the psychology that is behind everything that we've talked about today. Why is it that we struggle to um, perceive and recognise the intelligence, the purposiveness, the agency of other living beings? Why is it that we deny that they can communicate their interests to us? And how can we take steps to overcome that? And I think one of the first things that we can just do as individuals is take off the human glasses and actually meet the living world, meet other organisms on their own terms, not through human cultural lenses, not through human imaginaries, but actually really listen and attend to the other subjects that live alongside us. And that's that's a daily practice, if you like, but I think that that is one of the first steps that we have to take as individuals. From then, the crucial steps are to recognize um, that other beings should be moral subjects, not just moral objects or patients, but actual real moral subjects with their own moral standing. What follows from that is then enormous, because of course within our democracies we should represent and listen to them. But it's those first two steps, one quite small and intimate, but, but revolutionary, the other one um, really the work of, of ethics and, and law that, that need to come first, I think. And some of the things that I got out of your book to answer this question was also that we should prime for love and compassion and empathy with people and not fear. Although a lot of politicians are constantly priming for fear because fear puts us in a mindset, as you mentioned, that's more self-interested and priming for love and compassion and empathy with other animals gets us in a mindset that's more open 
to this narrative that we could share, which also goes into another thing that you had said in the book that like you had asked a question, like, do we want to be more collaborative with other animals or self-protective? So I like the idea that can we operate in the spirit that we're not competitors with all these other animals, but that we're collaborators, like they're citizens. So, um, so that was another thing that I am going to take away is this kind of a, a collaborative um, spirit that we can bring the way we frame our discussions and a loving well, and, compassionate and empathetic spirit. Sure. And it's, it's also, it's a respect space, you know, yeah. in theory, our democracies should be based on respect, even if people have views that, that really run counter to ours. And we should, in a good, healthy democracy, listen to one another and have a really good infrastructure to listen to one another from a basis of respect. You know, we are always going to have conflicts with other living beings. We, conflicts are not going to go away. Um, but what you, what we don't have and what we need, and I guess this is the kind of collaboration I'm talking about, is um, to have a baseline respect for the rest of the living world and other other. Um, beings out there and, and to listen to them uh, as a standard practice we, we're not doing that great with one another at the moment but right. I think if we as you say if we were nudging ourselves more you know less through exploiting fear and, and superiority and more through listening models and, and um, a spirit of collaboration we, we um, we'd be on the right track well, we have to wrap up soon, but for our last question, Melanie, tell us how you built on the foundation of this How to Be Animal book in your latest book to develop the concept of animal dignity. Because in a way, it's like kind of just taking this concept a, a step further, right? Like I would imagine that it relates to the notion that if like a, if that human, there is a notion of human dignity, but there can be a notion of more broadly of animal dignity. Sure. I mean, again, it's it, this is a much... A deeper question than I can answer um, <laughs> <laughs> too quickly but I actually I, I deconstruct the idea of dignity uh, again as I said because I'm a you know a moral naturalist I, I kind of don't just take the logic of, of a concept in it in I, I naturalize it so I, I was trying to make sense of dignity and I kind of deconstructed it a bit uh, critically in in how to be animal but I got thinking about it that dignity which has had a few knocks from philosophers and particularly in my kind of area in bioethics a fair bit over the years. Um, but actually, dignity is incredibly useful. It's a concept that philosophers might like to be sniffy about, but in fact is heavily used in it and very um, comprehensible to people. And one of the places that dignity for human beings comes into play so much, and this is the moralized idea of dignity, not its older sort of um, ideas around status and rank, for instance, is usually in places of vulnerability or where power relations um, show up, the kind of biological vulnerability that's at the heart of us. So, for instance, in hospices, in hospitals, in school environments, in professional environments where there could be the potential for vulnerability, we find that dignity really comes into its own. It, again, it biases us towards a kind of basic respect that we should show, and from that follow actions that that you know help us to guide us in in how we should relate to someone who might be in a vulnerable situation. I think that is something that is very 
useful when we come to building out our um, moral behavior with other living beings, because what we see so often is that we place other animals in situations of real vulnerability in their relations with us. And so I think an idea like, uh, you know, a concept like animal dignity helps us to understand not only how we objectify other animals, because objectification is always a key part of the, the notion of dignity, but not only how we objectify them in order to exploit them, but how it, it can provide us with some new sort of moral tools to assist in, in those situations where there's a real power balance that derives from, ultimately derives from our animality on both sides. Um, so that's that's kind of where it came from. It, 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 it came out of kind of critically pulling apart dignity, but yeah. then I started to realise that this, this provides us with a really powerful moral tool, actually, to kind of um, help guide our conduct with regard to other, other living beings. I like that. That's another example of a different mental orientation we can take, that we could treat other animals with dignity. And if we had that concept in our mind, then that would give, you know, have the, it would lead to the respectful behaviors that you're talking about. Well, I'll definitely have to have you back on the show to talk more about that particular book and your Animals in the Room um, project too, that I think maybe could go together with that. Yeah, I would love to. Yes, very much. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Melanie Challenger, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for prompting our species to refresh in our minds the loveliness of being animal, to acknowledge the truth of our common animal dignity, and create a more harmonious and healthy future together. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com forward slash In Tune to Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other animals. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>